welcome to SpicFic NZ podcast, where we bring you the authors that aren't afraid to ask what if. I'm Matt Danaher, and I mostly write unpublished short stories. I'm Kura Carpenter. I'm a Dunedin fantasy author. My debut novel, The Kingfisher's Debt, has come, just come out recently. And I'm Nick Whitaker, and I have nine novels that are indie published at the moment. Hi everyone, tonight we are very lucky to have award-winning writer and screenwriter Jean Gilbert on the podcast. So Jean, tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate the time you've taken out. Originally, I'm from New York um, in America. I've been in New Zealand for 15 years. I've been a huge fan of science fiction and fantasy since I was an early age. Um, I grew up with Lord of the Rings. Isaac Asimov, um, Robert H. Heinlein, uh, Dune series, Terry Brooks, Terry Pratchett. Those are all my common authors that I love and grew up with. So when Lord of the Rings came out and I saw the scenery here, I'm like, that's where I want to be. And so we (laughs) moved here. So I blame it on that. Um, As you said, I am a writer. I write um, novels and um, screenplays. I favor science fiction and fantasy, of course. I have one award-winning series, um, The Vault series, Shifters, Artists, and The Vault. It's about uh, time traveling, secret agency. And also I have another award-winning series. It's uh, a young adult fantasy called Light in My Dark. Uh, That came out first. Uh, The second book, Light in My Blood, is due to be released next week. I'm very excited about it. And that is co-authored with William Dresden. And what else? Mm -hmm. Um, I also have a face blindness book coming out. We'll talk about that maybe later. That's called The Picasso Mirror. And that's a memoir about my life and dealing with face blindness. And as far as the screenwriting, I started out with TV pilots. So I've written three science fiction pilots and um, I've written two feature films at this point. So I'm working on lots of projects at the moment, as most writers do. I've gone from one project to multi-projects at the same time. I've won several awards in writing in New Zealand. Um, I've had a few of my short stories um, nominated for awards. One big thing I like to say is I love to cosplay. It's, um, I find great joy in dressing up. I went to Comic-Con San Diego in 2013, dressed in all my steampunk. It was an amazing event. And I also go to the Armageddon up in Auckland when I can. Definitely. I'm definitely going to be interested in asking you a bit about your uh, screenwriting uh, later okay. on. But first of all... Um, how did you find out about Spectrific NZ and how long have you been a member? When I first came to New Zealand, which was in 2005, I was looking for a writing group. Um, I was new in the country. Everything was new. I went online to search and I couldn't find Spectrific NZ at that time. I found the Romance Writers of New Zealand and uh, New Zealand Society of Authors. So I joined the Romance Writers just so I could have some kind of support. And through them, they recommended me to go to the Science Fiction and Fantasy Fans National Con in Auckland that year. I thought, yeah, I'm science fiction buff, I'll, I'll go. And when I was there, I received a flyer um, from Grant Stone, who was the um, president at the time for SpecFic. And that's how I was first introduced to it. And um, so I joined immediately. And then I was looking for a writer group in my area, which there was none. They were only in Auckland 
Wellington and Christchurch at the time. So I've been with SpecFic for over 10 years. Um, I started a SpecFic writing group around that same time because I needed support and I thought, hey, there's other people in my genre who probably are looking for support too. So I've been doing the group for about eight years now. Um, we call ourselves the SpecFic Central Group and we re meet regularly once a month. And we're a very active group as far as promoting writing and helping each other out. Um, I also joined the committee. So I was the secretary for, I think it was five years um, for SpecFic NZ. So I was in oh, wow. part of the um, core committee at that time. But due to family obligations, I had to step down from anything extra at the time. So now I'm just a regular member, but um, I still love running our central group and being part of the organization. Next, do you, did you have some questions? Yes. So since I deal with young writers in my day job, that's kind of where I want to focus all my questions around. So what advice would you give someone who wants to help mentor young writers? Mm, I love mentoring young people. Their imagination is has no bounds. They're not stricter by um, adult life and being afraid to express ourselves. They're really so much fun and to guide their imagination into a working story is very, very satisfying. So I can understand your love for doing it because I love doing it too. And most students are very appreciative of the help you um, are willing to give them. One thing I found though is some students want you to do all the work. So you are there just to guide them and not give them story ideas and do the work for them. Uh, I help by giving them examples, not that they use those examples, but like say, this is what you can do and that will help them. Um, I make them do the work and it's the best way for them to learn. I'm also don't shy away from showing them the red marks in when we go to editing. Um, I tell them red marks are good. It means your work is good enough that we want to make it even better. They're not something to shy away from. When I had my first project um, edited professionally, I, it was my first taste of the red marks and I was really upset. So I know how they feel. So I want to like cushion them from that feeling like, oh, my work is really bad. It's not. It's good enough to be made better. So that's one thing I concentrate on when um, we're working with them. The other thing I do is um, I don't overwhelm them with too much technique. Because learning to write is a, is a art form. It's a skill. It's something you build on through the years. So when they're really young, I work with their age group and give them little things to work on. It might be just the story they need to work on or the character or the plot, just little things like that. And then add to their knowledge. Um, I notice because we work a lot with um, competitions, so we get students work around the whole nation. And there's a few things that seem to be a problem. Um, they don't understand the proper length of a story, like the beginning, middle, and end. So that's right. basically where we start. The beginning might be two thirds of their story. And then they realize, oh, I need to end by 750 words. So they kill the character off or put the character <laughs> asleep. Or, yeah. So we try to tell them, yeah, have the action start right away and then get into your story. That's one of the big things. Um, another one is having them think about picking one tense. So we yeah. find a lot of stories that are going back and forth between tenses and it's like, oh, that's a lot of editing work. So if they can pick one tense before they even start, that helps their writing improve. And the third thing I find is um, picking one point of view character. Because when they're writing a short story, they don't have time to do a good job with other 
multiple characters. So if they just pick one and stay in their head, the story seems to improve dramatically when they do those things. So those are the three big things I work with when students um, hand me their writing. That yeah. kind of answers. That kind of answers my second question, which is, what mistakes do you always see young writers do? That are, that's yeah. a, that's the three biggest mistakes. Um, one mistake I find um, that annoys me is that they think they know more than you know. It doesn't <laughs> happen very often, but as in, because I also am the editor. So as an editor, I'm trying to make their work better, but not change the work. And if they're fighting me about, you know, picking one point of view or picking one tense, then they're not ready for competition because they're not understanding the the job of the editor. So I try to, in a kind way, you know, guide them. Like if you're going to go out in the real publishing world, they're a lot harder on you than I am. I'm trying to be kind and gentle and teach you, you know, this is the way it is. And some just don't understand that. And yeah, but most are very, you know, appreciative of what you put into their work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah. So I was going to ask a lot of young writers start with platforms like Wattpad. And I've had some tell me that uh, it's, like my students will regret it if they put their work out because usually your first stuff is never going to be amazing. Wow. So what are your thoughts about publishing early work, even if it's only on places like Wattpad? It's really tricky because yeah. say your student is doing a novel, they only have one chance to do their first novel. And if they do it young and it's not ready, it, it doesn't look good on their resume, so to say. Or if they want to enter a competition, and it's for your first novel, that's gone. You know, they don't have that opportunity anymore. So my advice is not to rush, rush yeah. putting the work out. Make it the best you can be because once it's out there, it's out there for good. It's not like you could take it back. So you have to be proud of your work, but it has to be gone through the proper channels. It has to be properly edited and proofread and formatted right because all those things do matter. That's an interesting question, actually, because... Um... There's a, there's a writer I really love um, called Claire North, who's a, a British writer who writes kind of contemporary um, books with like magical realism or uh, sort of fantasy elements, but set in the real world. And she's she's amazing. And she's in her like late 20s. And separately, I had read books by these two other authors. I can't remember both of their names, but one is a woman called Kate Griffin. And I'd read these series separate, entirely separately. And the first one by the first writer whose name I can't remember, I thought, mm, yeah, okay, but I'm not going to read any more. They're not that great. And then the Kate Griffin books, I read, I think, two of them because they were better. And then Claire North, I read, and I then heard an interview with her on a podcast where it turned out it's all the same writer. And the first mm -hmm. name, it was when she was literally 16 and she got a publishing deal. And then the Kate Griffin writer was when she was like 20 and then Claire North was when she'd evolved again as a writer and just become so much better. And she's yeah. probably done about five or six books with that name. So these um, are really good use for pen names. Pen names, yeah. yep. Yeah. Uh, like I tell the students, um, like any craft, you, you're learning it. You, yeah. It's like taking a, a pot of clay. You can't make a beautiful vase out of it right away. It takes a lot of experience and time to learn that craft to make something beautiful and the same with writing it, mm. it doesn't come naturally to everybody and there's lots of um things you have to learn as a skill that's why uh, i think it was uh stephen king who said um you have to write a million words before you're mm. you learn the craft so that's about 10 100,000 word volumes books before you learn the craft 
So it's just, that's why I try to tell the students that it is a craft and it's something you will get better and better at. So you don't want to publish your first stuff because it's just not ready. Even though they're so, excited, it's just not ready. And you don't want so, that to stain your, um, so to say, your resume, your CV. Yeah. So what yeah. about on platforms that are designed to give feedback? Because that's kind of what Wattpad is. It's not really for uh, making money because you can't make money on it. Yeah. But it's more for people to show you like what could work better and things like that. What about places like that? I know when I first started, I was on things like Fan Story and Critique Circle and those type of things. Mm -hmm. What about places like that? Yeah, that's fine. Like I joined one of those, I think it was critique for, for ladies or something. That was, I'm in <laughs> things. So I'm like, okay, I'll try this. Yeah. I think those are okay. As long as you're hooking up with the right um, mentorship in those programs. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes you find people will just downgrade your work and that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for a positive feedback, you know, and for progress for your work. So yeah, you have to hook up with the right people and be discreet about you know, or not critical, but just make sure you have the right person to help you. And sometimes yeah. those people become your life critique partners. So mm. it's not always a bad thing. Mm. It's but sometimes really, the blind yeah. leading the blind though, isn't it? It is in that way. Because <laughs> when I joined it, I was fairly new too. And neither one of us knew what we were talking about at the time. So it wasn't very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so steering it away from writing for a second um, and talking about face blindness which you have if you mm -hmm. don't mind what i wonder is how did you realize you were face blind how were you diagnosed there's two ways to have face blindness or prosopanosia is its medical term um either through trauma like a head trauma or a stroke um okay that way when that happens to you you know automatically that something has changed yes, because the to not seeing faces. Um, the other way okay. is developmental or congenital. That's when you're born with it. So I was born with okay. it. So right. I thought everybody saw the world the way I did. I didn't realize Absolutely. people were using faces to recognize people. So when I discovered that I was um, in my late twenties, uh, there was a, like a 2020 show on television that was talking about face blindness. And it was, it was me. I said, that's, that's me. Yeah. And, but I couldn't like, in my heart, I'm like, I don't have a brain problem. Who wants to admit they have a brain problem? Hmm. And then I went to the doctor's office uh, and there was a red book magazine that had an extensive article with 24 symptoms or yeah. And I had all 24. So then I'm like, yeah, this has to be me. And at the time, yeah. this is in the early nineties, there wasn't much research done on it because they were focusing more on Alzheimer's and dementia because face blindness doesn't really affect you as those um, brain diseases do. Yeah, so. absolutely. You can still function. Yeah. So at the time, the doctor says, yeah, you probably have it, but there's no real test we can do. You know, just the symptoms tell you you have it. You can go on um, Google. There's um, Cambridge Medical that um, you can go and go through the symptoms to see if you have it. 2% of the population have face blindness. So out of 100 people in the room, there's two people that have it. But it falls on a spectrum. So just like autism, you could be very mild or you could be very severe or somewhere in between. So I'm very severe where I don't recognize any of my family, friends, people I work with. I don't even recognize myself in the mirror. So all my photographs um, have the names written on the back. So I know who they are. Yeah. Even myself. Yeah. Oh, goodness. That could lead to some 
awkward situations where you oh, see a photo yeah. and you're like, you're criticizing your own haircut or something. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so oh awkward. So, so awkward. And that's why I've written this book because uh, for many, many years, I was really embarrassed about it. And I wouldn't say to people, you know, I, I honestly, I, I will not recognize you when you walk away. And it's gotten to me in some really bad situations. So I said, yeah. no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to just be right up front with people and say, look, I won't remember you. I really, really won't remember you because I don't remember myself. And it has helped enlighten people more, even though most don't understand because yeah. you don't live with it. It's really hard to understand how it works. Yeah. So that kind of leads into my other question. Um, so when you're interacting with people on a daily basis, what ways have you learned to cope with friends and family versus maybe people that you um, come into contact on a regular basis, like, you know, the, the mailman or that kind of thing? Have you, have you come up with strategies? Because I'm assuming a lot of it would be um, you'd get good at remembering um, what jewellery people are wearing or the sounds of their voices kind of thing, or, or am I just being completely naive for thinking that? No, uh, I totally use voice recognition. So the more I hear people talk, the more regular, then that's a person I will remember. I also yes. um, do body language, like people yeah. carry themselves differently. If they have a tattoo, that's really helpful or a disfigurement, that's really helpful. A mold, anything that would be a permanent fixture on someone, that's what I, how I will recognize them. But it's mostly the voice that I will recognize. Yeah. I want to look at the face to decide if I know you or not. So dealing with my everyday people, like my family, um, I expect them to be where they're going to be. So, you know, when my yeah. husband comes in the bedroom, I'm assuming that's yes, my that's husband. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I have to tell you a funny story. Um, he went to Germany for six weeks. And of course, you know, I have to go pick him up at the airport, but it's been six weeks. Uh, and I've had pictures with me and stuff. So I, you know, tried to make that work. Anyways, I'm waiting there at the airport. And um, any guy could have come up to me and give me a kiss and I would have taken him home. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the stranger comes up to me and he, he's got a mustache on and, and he's coming at me and he's looking at me. And I'm like, who is, you know, and it was my husband. He'd grown a mustache in those six weeks, which is a big no-no to someone with these Yeah, I, I personally think that's a little bit mean, actually. <laughs> that he I was so bad all the way past. Yeah. I think oh, you yeah. need to recommend to him that he gets a, a helpful facial tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So we've had all these experiences, but now I, since I'm vocal, I tell all my workmates and mm. um, anybody who I know I'm going to have like constant um, communication with to say, I need like anchor points. I can remember yeah. the event, but I can't remember you in the event. So say hi, I'm Curry. Um, we had this interview together and we talked about face blindness. So that puts you in the event. I won't see you as a person, but I'll know, oh, yeah, this sure. you're in this event. So that's how we function normally day to day. Yeah. But postman and all that, I just, he's wearing a uniform as the postman. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking like maybe if you met people regularly and you had conversations with them and the next time you saw it and you didn't bring it up, they'd be offended or something. And that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Even in the past when you've told people, I won't remember you. They probably they take it quite you. personally because people are quite yeah. egocentric and they're like, well, what's, what's not interesting about me that I don't get exactly. thing, you know? Yeah. And it happens all the time. I could be in the grocery store and the, someone will say, oh, hi, Jean. 
or I'll walk by people and not know and say, oh, she's so rude. She's stuck up. <laughs> she didn't right. she's but it's so aloof. Aloof. Yeah. yeah. Wow. My so goodness. that's why I've written this book because yeah. for me, and that's coming out in October. You see it? Yes, it's coming out in October, and it's called yeah. the Picasso Mirror. Picasso Mirror. The Picasso Brilliant. Mirror. And um, back onto writing, if you don't mind, because I saw reading your bio that you co-author, and I was just wondering, could you give us some tips? Um, how do you recommend to help organize and stay on track when you're working on a co-author project? Yeah. Um, anything particularly you use? Uh, one of the most important things is you both have to plot together. Yeah. So we're, we're doing a three book series that's light in my dark and now light in my blood is coming out um, in a couple weeks. And so we've plotted the whole series all the way through because when there's two minds working, it, they have to work together on the one project. And if someone's going off on another tangent, you can't write a story that meets up with that. So we had to be very specific on what our plot is and we stick very closely to that plot. And we also um, decided who's writing what. So um, yeah. since we're writing multiple characters, uh, William writes the teenage boy, I write the teenage girl, and I write when they're all together. So because okay. sometimes yeah. the journey separates them. So if the journey separates them, then he, you know, will write the boy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that works really well for us. And we have um, constant communication and we yeah. work on one program. So we work out of Dropbox and we oh, yeah. can pull the, um, we use Scrivener so we can pull that out and write each file, you know, each chapter is a file. And so I can see, oh, he's working because it will come up on my computer that he's in that Dropbox file. So I know, oh, he's working on it. So I can't get into it, but I'm happy he's working on it. Okay. <laughs> and he can right. the same oh, for good. me that I'm working on it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of accountability there. Oh, yeah. See them opening it and using it. Think, oh, I've got to do some. Yes. Brilliant. And we kind of skip keep to a schedule too, because yeah. um, I am more the go-getter the organizer and I, mm -hmm. I keep to my writing schedule where he is not. So I might be the pusher, you know, as I, yeah. I can't write anymore until you write this chapter. So he needs to write yeah. it. So I push him to write. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> I need someone to do that to me. <laughs> and it works really well for us. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's got his strong points. Like he's really good at yeah. art. So he handles the covers and he does an amazing job getting the artist and the maps mm. and all those kind of things. Yeah. Absolutely. Having those complementary skills would work really well. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Cool. Thank you. Over to you, Matt. So, uh, we've already talked a little bit. You're a, you know, you're a Hollywood screenwriter. Um, mm -hmm. How did you, how did you break into the, that industry? And did you do it from New Zealand or were you already involved? Uh, no, I did it from New Zealand. Um, when I first started screenwriting, it, it was a fluke because I never had the desire to write screenplays. I'm a novelist and I love writing novels but um one of my art friends who worked on my first book he's from england and he um, wanted to read the books but he doesn't have time because he's doing all this art projects so i sent him a short story that was up for publication it was a a science fiction kind of like a firefly story and um he really loved it and he had a friend in hollywood um that he wanted 
to pass it on to him. I'm like, that's fine, but you know, keep it private because it's up for publication. I didn't know that the friend was a producer. So the producer got a hold of it and he absolutely loved it and he wanted to meet me. So on one of my trips to the States, we met and he asked me to write a 10 minute promotional um, piece for him so he could show his, his skill. And he, he just gave me, I want it to be Firefly and Star Wars. That's all he gave me to work on. And I said, okay, I've never written a script in my life. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And I did it. And he absolutely loved it. And from that, um, I wrote a 20 minute piece and he showed it to the director of Shields. Do you know that? Um, yeah, the cop show. Yeah. He showed it to the director of that show. And he said, I want to see this in a pilot. So he came back to me and said, I want you to write uh, um, a TV pilot. And I'm like, okay. I, tell, I always say yes. And then I come home. I'm like, oh! yeah. Now I have to make a real story out of it. He didn't understand. I didn't, I just did two scenes for the mm -hmm. promotional piece. Now I have to make a real story. And that takes a lot of work for me, especially with face blindness. I have to make these um, character Bibles and, and with television, you have to do like episode plots. You have to do um, a ser uh, the year plot and then the three year plot for it. That's how it works. And I've never done that before. So I did it and I sent it and now it's with Disney. So, and since then I've written three uh, television pilots after that and two movies, which I can't talk about any of them. There's none of them around yet? Or is that because they're all yeah. in production kind of? They're all non-disclosed. They're all, yeah, under contract. So you can't talk about mm -hmm. them at all. Okay. And the thing with Hollywood, just because they've bought your work oh, yeah, or yeah. option doesn't mean it's ever yeah. made. That's the sad part. Or you could wait 10 years and then finally something happens. So yeah, it's a tough business, but I guess my biggest advice is to be nice to everybody because you don't know who people are connected to and you don't know how your attitude or your behavior will help you in the future or hinder you in the future. So mm -hmm. just be nice to everybody. Yeah, it's very useful, but probably something that comes natural to most people in New Zealand, yeah. given that the rule is the same here, as yeah. if everyone knows each other. Um, no, that's, that's really interesting. So I'm going to go to my third question first, actually, because um, you've kind of touched on it a little bit. So with, with the series, um, is there kind of a writer room environment, or are you doing it all by yourself? Pilots are usually done individually. Once a TV show is bought, then you will be... Um, invited to a writing room. You might not be the dominant writer, depends on your skill, but there's usually a writing table, you know, and there'll be several. And if you've watched TV shows, you'll notice how the um, writer for one episode will be different than the other. They'll pick the main writer for that episode as the one they'll put up on the screen, but you all will have a share in it. So the story, it would be like created by Gene Gilbert, Maybe the first one will be, you know, written by Jean Gilbert, but the rest might be written by someone else in the writing room. That's how that works. And would you expect to go and be based over there while you're doing that? Or would you do it sort of remotely? I've, he's asked me that and I said, I will go if it comes to that point. Um, because it doesn't necessarily mean you're there full time. And with modern technology, like we Skype, that's how we communicate. And any mm -hmm. of the pitching I do is usually on Skype. So you don't have to physically be in Hollywood. You just have to make yourself available, which means I have to get up at three in the morning to do a Skype call. Yes. Put on my makeup, make my hair look nice, <laughs> be ready to pitch at three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that's literally the main disadvantage to being in New Zealand yeah. for anything that's <laughs> remote. 
Yeah. Definitely. I found that myself. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's just really interesting. I used to listen to a podcast called Script Notes when I thought, after yes. I'd, I'd, I wrote some uh, screenplays for work projects, sort of promotional films and stuff. And um, it kind of got me thinking that maybe I could break in and just the whole kind of the pitching, the writer's room, the kind of being in Hollywood um, or getting contacts in Hollywood. I just thought, I just can't even imagine how I would do that. <laughs> so, I mean, it was fascinating listening yeah. to it, but it totally kind of put me off that kind of thing personally um having said that though um i, I do have a film idea um and i'm i'm quite keen to kind of try something with it i'm just thinking from the point of view of a new writer a lot of our members and a lot of our listeners are, are science fiction fantasy yeah. horror that kind of thing is there an ideal genre to choose because sci-fi yeah. you think you know that's going to be high budget high demand kind of thing risky um, but for instance, horrors like low budget, potentially you can do. So feature film, if you want to go that direction, horror is your the easiest way to get into filming. So if you could put on a good horror um, like that, I forgot his name because I'm terrible with names. The one who did Get Out and Us. Yes. He's new. Oh, I can't remember his name either. No. Yeah. So that's horror. And that's how you can easily, easier way to break in. Science fiction, like you said, is very difficult unless you're not use you're using very limited CGI. So if you're doing practical, it's a lot easier. So when you're writing your script, if it can all be all practical effects or presumed, I don't know how I want to say that, like um, just using the mind instead of actually using physical things, you know, like having that background noise or the old school kind of horror where the doorknob, you know, is just slowly moving. Those kind of things, those are inexpensive to do. And when you're writing for film, it's all about money. Um, that's one of the workshops I did for the students in May when I talked about writing scripts. You're, yes, it is an art form and you can put yourself into it. The, most, the number one you think of when you're writing your script is how much is this gonna be cost to make? Because that whoever's looking at the script, that's the first thing they're looking at. Can I make this? What's the budget gonna be? So when you're adding props and stuff, that's what you're thinking how much is it going to be in the location is that like feasible or is it cheap so yeah when you're writing like when you're a new screenwriter you have to keep all that to a minimum and then it's easier for them to pick that up because they're thinking you know you're they're taking a chance on you as a new writer so you want it, your budget of your movie to be as low as possible so i'm talking about million dollars you know that's a low budget movie nowadays and i guess yeah, that would depend I... on the um, size of the studio wouldn't it what they consider to be yeah low budget sort of thing yeah. yeah when i was in my early 20s i did work on a couple of tv shows and films um back home in england the film i watched it was done by an award-winning kind of BAFTA award-winning director um he'd made his name a year before with like a massively successful film and even this one um even though he was in that kind of peak especially in an environment like britain and even more so in new zealand it's like the amount of money you've got i mean that was a million pound budget for that film and that still didn't you know that barely lasted the sort of six it was all spent um you know it's a really expensive thing to do to make a film yeah so if you could keep the cast to a minimal you know and don't have a huge ensemble um yeah that's because if you want a top-notch actor that's your expensive thing mm. so you keep your cast to a minimal your extras to a minimal where you had the location to a no nondescript place if you can 
that kind of thing. If you're doing horror, keep it practical instead of special effects if you can, because special effects are very, very expensive. So all those things you have to think about when you're writing your script, and it is possible to do. Yeah, Paranormal Activity, I think, is probably the one I think of as the most recent example of a kind of, you know, incredibly low budget. I think that was only like $70,000 or something. Yeah, that's like a no budget. And it made millions. It made absolutely made millions and loads. So yeah, that would be my advice. Um, And from what all I've read is to do horror first. But I'm not doing horror. I my feature films are romantic comedies. Believe it or not. But I love science fiction. But I suppose they're relatively low budget. It would have been super expensive. Actually, it wasn't because it was one set scene and uh, i can't talk about it no <laughs> yeah i really want to see that that's that's totally my genre i'd love that yeah yeah I, that's it's what mine I too it's mine i'm quite excited to write that kind of um projects yeah my uh the next book i'm working on is actually a space opera and it's um mm. treasure hunt in space what would be Ooh. the next treasure hunt in space? Yeah. Ooh. So that one is three quarters done and I hope to have it released next year, but that's still early. I'll definitely look out for that one. Um, that's, uh, what have you personally found is the best thing about belonging to Specfic NZ? What I really like about Specfic NZ is um, the sense of community. That's something I really needed, uh, especially being a foreigner, moving into a new country, um, finding my tribe people who think like me and people who want to help you know we're we're all in this together there's no one lording it over another person and specfic has done that for me from the beginning even making the writing group in the central part of the island it's brought the specfic um, members together and we're a really strong team and um do what we can like i think um quite a few of us have been part of the core committee that have been in our central group yeah we all like stand strong for specfic and what it represents for the country um because science fiction fantasy and horror has it's not given the recognition that it should how important it is to society and that it is good writing i get so sick of people who um mostly nonfiction writers who look down on science fiction it's hard to write proper science fiction and they don't give it a chance you know they don't they won't even open a book to to sample it so to say to see what kind of writing it is so i think specfic really fills that hole that we need in this country and since i joined it actually um, my writing career took off with networking and um, going to events where specfic is located so yeah i highly recommend it and even taking a uh, turn on the committee it gives you an inside look at what goes on um behind the scenes and where your membership money goes and some of the opportunities out there that the organization provides so yeah I highly recommend it and I do promote it. I promote it to all the young people that I mentor and anybody I meet. I have the, I have a whole stack of the flyers. I'm the one who made those flyers, by the way. That's my flyer you're giving out. I really believe in this community. So yeah, I stand 100% behind Specific NZ. So um, last, last thing of all, Jean, it, where can our listeners find you online? So I have my own website. It's jeangilbert.com. Um, the books are on there. It'll show you um, events I, I'll be at. If you have any comment, you can put it there. I, I do respond to everybody who um, emails me through that. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. And you can find me at Specific NZ. Thank Brilliant. you. That's great.
Thank you so much. That's really been interesting. Thank you. You're welcome.